guys. Welcome to Kyle to You. I'm Kyle McMahon. As you know, we've had a bit of a break since the last episode. What I wanted to do was really refocus what we're doing with the podcast. And so I've scheduled some really, really, really incredible guests to help you transform your life. Look, I'm a millennial. I know how tough it is. I know the hustle. Believe me, I really, really, really do. And so there's so much going on for our generation that there wasn't for other generations. You know, they're, they're, and a lot of them don't even see it, but it's true. I mean, the statistics show that we are dealing with a lot more than previous generations had to deal with regarding debt and inflation and all kinds of insane stuff. So, you know, I want this to be your home to improve your life, to transform your life. That is the whole motto of why I started Kyle to you, the website and and the podcast in the first place. It is to help you give you the tools to transform your life. So I'm really excited to relaunch with season two of the Kyle to you podcast. So the first guest for the relaunch for season two is Dr. Loretta Bruning, and she is absolutely incredible. She's the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute, and she has a very, very interesting history. She was a college professor for decades. Outside of that, she studied mammals, you know, animals and their brains and and their reactions to fear and and their responses. So she has a very, very, very interesting, you know, background to talk about anxiety. So she actually has a book, Tame Your Anxiety, and it's it's really, really cool. She puts it in layman's terms. She makes it really easy to understand. I really, really love this book. So I am proud to present to you my interview with Dr. Loretta Bruning. So, first of all, doctor, thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to talk to you about Finding Your Happy Hour and your new book, Tame Your Anxiety. Great. So, uh, let's start. First of all, you are a founder of the Inner uh, Inner Mammal Institute, and that helps people manage the ups and downs of their mammalian brain. Is that correct? And can you tell me a little bit about about the Inner Mammal Institute? Sure. So I was a college professor for 25 years, and I had studied motivation according to the usual social science doctrine, and it wasn't working for me in my life. And I noticed that it wasn't working for a lot of other professors in their life. So I started studying more deeply what motivates animals, and I learned that they have the same brain chemicals as us. And in the animal world, it's very easy to see what triggers them because they don't restrain themselves. And so we're talking about dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. These are the brain chemicals that make us feel good, and they are released for reasons that are not often what we're thinking. And why can you explain a little bit about that? You know, traditionally what what I think as a non-science person is – uh, probably different than than why it actually happens with those chemicals. Yeah, 
So in the state of nature, nobody has a refrigerator, so you have to constantly look for food or else you starve. But if you wait until you're already starving to look for food, then you don't really have enough energy. So dopamine is the good feeling that you get when you see something that meets your needs. So if you see some fruit in the distance or if you're thirsty and you see a water hole, then your brain says, oh, that meets my needs, and it turns on dopamine, and that gives you both a good feeling and the physical motivation to go towards it. And that good feeling we're always looking for because in the state of nature, that's what allowed you to survive. That's the natural constant motivation. So in the modern world, with our bellies full so easily, then we have to look for other ways to get this feeling of excitement. Okay, and you you are a Dawson at the Oakland Zoo, and you give tours on mammalian social behavior. How has what have you seen that is uh, you know kind of a dual duality between the animals' uh, social behavior and humans? Um, okay, so. Humans have a big cortex, which is the part of the brain that understands language. So when you're talking to yourself, it's all in your cortex. I I call it your inner public relations agency. (laughs) Um, um, And, you know, that saying, don't believe your own press clippings. So we all go around believing our own press clippings. Right. But um, underneath our big cortex, which is unique to humans, we have the same brain structures that all other mammals have, and that's what's controlling our chemicals. And that's why, you know, one part of you says, oh, I'd feel, I'd feel really good if I ate the whole pizza. And another part of you would say, no, you won't feel good if you ate the whole pizza or whatever else the thing is. So that's why we sort of feel like we're of two minds and so many things. So animals don't have the large cortex, so they just act on these impulses. And in the state of nature, that works. That's the brain that evolution created. And the cortex, it's not there to make you miserable. It's there to anticipate future consequences. Okay, wow. All right, that's pretty powerful. And what do you think that we as humans, as as big mammals, uh, what do you think we do to ourselves that kind of hinders ourselves with all of this? So uh, to complicate it a bit more, (laughs) uh, apart from the unhappy, uh, apart from the happy chemicals, we have unhappy chemicals. And cortisol is the the stress chemical that we hear a lot about. And if you imagine in the state of nature, like you had to learn not to touch fire. So you only had to touch it once. And that would build a pathway in your brain. And anything that's painful, it builds a huge pathway that says, whoa, don't go near that. So because of our relatively safe world from a physical perspective, any social pain, any social frustrations or disappointments or obstacles to getting our social needs met, that seems like a huge threat because our whole danger radar is being invested in that because the rest of our lives are so safe. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that, isn't it? That? <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. So I love, you have this concept called finding your happy hour, and I love that. Can you, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Sure. So I mentioned cortisol. It has a half-life of about an hour. 
Uh, I'm sorry, it has a half-life of 20 minutes, which means you get rid of most of it in about an hour. Wow. So cortisol, as most people have heard, is the chemical that makes you feel like you're in immediate danger. And if you think of a gazelle who smells a predator, what's the first thing you do is you look for where is the predator before you can run. So our brain is designed for it to look for threat signals. So once you get a little bit triggered by something, your huge cortex is using all of the power of seven, you know, seven million years of human evolution to find threats. And we're really good at finding threats when we look. So that whole hour that cortisol is in your body before you eliminate it, you're just looking for bad stuff. So that's what I suggest is have an activity that you love that you can go to so that you don't release any more cortisol because that's how you get in a loop is when you release more cortisol and then you release more and more and more. But if you do something fun for that hour, then you don't get in the loop. And can, is that something so I, I struggle with planes? My dad's a pilot. So don't don't ask. But <laughs> but so I've had, uh, you know, I have an on and off relationship with flying. So sometimes I'm flying all the time and sometimes I'm not flying for a year. What yeah. is that? Is that something specifically that I can do? Is it like a muscle that I have to build up or is it something that I can specifically do in that moment to break that loop? Good question. So first, the, the fear of flying is a circuit like the fear of fire. So that's built from some actual past experience. And um, we all have these fear circuits from our past experience. So the challenge is to build a new positive circuit with a positive association for flying. So what I would suggest is, and, and I've had to do this myself, um, Think about stuff you love to do, like for the next month or two, every time you want to do something, whether it's a delicious food or a fabulous show you want to watch, save that for your next plane flight. And then it's like, oh, I can't wait to eat that on that plane flight. I can't wait to watch that on that plane flight. So you build up positive expectations. And then when you're on the plane, then you get to do all those things you like, including when you're exhausted to say, wow, when I'm on that plane, I'm really going to enjoy doing nothing, you know. Okay. I love that. Thank you. And um, I, ha I have one of these coming up because I, 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 I don't love to fly, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I had one time when I really, really struggled with it. And it was actually before, um, you know, terrorism. It was when um, I, I thought, you know, I thought, what is causing this? And I had these various things, including my my mother was dying and I was leaving my little children at home to go visit her, and I was taking night flights. And at night, we have fewer resources, you know, less courage, less strength. And then I was, I had a really bumpy flight. Mm. And so, and, and it was, a not, um, yeah, so I think I, I just built that whole, all those negative associations, I built that really bad feeling uh, and um, now I have this thing where I don't want to fly more than 10 hours, like not more than a 10-hour flight. I've decided that is my maximum. And just yesterday, I had to book, um, I have a, a conference in Argentina. 
So it's 14 hours away. Mm. So I'm, I'm really dreading that. So I'm already starting to plan and <laughs> um, my positive cash. And in the book, I call it filling your pantry with anxiety tamers. So you know the, the cliche about um, when you're on a diet, if you only have junk food around, you're going to eat it. So you have to empty your pantry of junk food and fill it with good food. And so I'm filling my pantry with fun things to do on the plane. I love. I absolutely love that. And by the way, I love the book, and it's Tame Your Anxiety. I love how you've broken it down to be easily digestible. It's not like a science textbook. You know what I'm saying? It is so relatable, so easily digestible, but it is really powerful in the what you're saying. How did you go about writing Tame Your Anxiety? Oh, huh. Thank you. <laughs> well, um, I should confess that um, most of my books are about happiness. So um, I guess it maybe it was a gradual transition because the second book was about positivity, but I had to write about negativity in order to get to positivity. So maybe that was a projection. But I very much believe in this idea of focus on what you want rather than what you don't want. So I'm not a big supporter of the disease view of emotions. But then I got some requests to write about this. So that's how I ended up there. I I find that fascinating because I am the same way in the belief of Focus on what you want and and don't focus on what you don't want. And I swear it has changed my life. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So. Yeah, because if you if you focus on what you don't want, your brain is very good at proving that it's right. Exactly. Exactly. And like you mentioned earlier, then you start finding things to back up that belief. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what is what is tame? In regards to Very the book. Good. So um, what I talk about always is from the perspective of nature. So what would be tame in nature? Well, it's not really a domesticated animal because in nature, a domesticated animal would not survive. And that's not the job that our brain evolved to do. So it wouldn't really be sitting on a tropical beach with a margarita because <laughs> that's not what an animal does when it's threatened. So um, taming in nature, it's really taking action and then seeing that your action has succeeded. So, for example, if a gazelle smells a predator, it finds an escape route, it runs, and then it goes back to enjoying the grass. So it's meeting your needs and feeling confident in your skill of avoiding threats. I love that. And then opposite to that, what is anxiety? Um, so anxiety, you could think of it as a circuit. It's, um, so we're all born with billions of neural pathways, but almost no connections between them. So the connections we have determine where the electricity in our brain flows, because it's sort of like if you're driving a car, you're going to go where the roads are. You can't just drive, you know, through the forest. So that's what the electricity in your brain does, and that's how you make sense of the world. When you take in the world, the electricity is triggered by your senses and it flows into the pathways you have. So if you've spent your whole life building up fear pathways, then that's where your brain is going to go. But you have the power to build new pathways with positive expectations 
And again, positive but realistic. So it can't be positive like puppies and rainbows and butterflies, but it's confidence in your own skill of managing in small steps. And this is the whole thing is small steps is all it takes to trigger a positive feeling and then another small step and another small step. That is huge. I, that is like so huge because I think sometimes people, and I've struggled with anxiety all of my life, and in the past couple of years, I've really been able to help uh, help myself to to manage it. And I, I tr- attribute a lot of that with taking small steps. And I love how that is something that you really focus on. It's not huge steps. This, I, I think some people get overwhelmed, like, oh, I'm never going to be able to not be anxious yeah. or not have an anxiety or panic attack because it's just, it's so much to do, but it's not really about that. It's the small yeah. steps. Yeah, exactly. And again, if you think about it like a gazelle, if a gazelle smells a lion, it looks for an escape route and then it takes one step after another. It doesn't focus on the lion. It focuses on its steps in order to successfully navigate the path. And the gazelle is never saying, oh, but the lion's still out there. I want to rid the world of lions forever, and I can't be happy until I do that. No, it's just saying, how can I meet my needs? And that's the job that our brain evolved to do. And you can't get happy chemicals from your cortex, you have to get them from your mammal brain. So your two brains really have to work together. Wow. And you talk a lot in Tame Your Anxiety about the power over your own brain. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the power over our own brain is actually smaller than we think, which is why it's so important to use it effectively. So um, one very well-known metaphor for this is that the brain is a horse and rider. And in other traditions, it's an elephant and rider or a donkey and a rider. So like you could see, like you can't really control the elephant or the horse, but on the other hand, you sort of need to control it. So you could think of the two being at war, and that's not a great, way to live if your two brains are at war with each other. So I focus on how can you train your two brains to learn from each other, to work together, to cooperate with each other. I, I love that. And, and I, can't, I can't tell you enough how much I love this book. Um, thank one, you. Of course, thank you. And so uh, one of the um, other things that you talk about is the relationship between food and anxiety. And what, what exactly is that relationship? Um, well, it's complex, and I go into a variety of different relationships, but there's two things. One is that in the state of nature, as I said, you had no pantry or refrigerator, no food stores. So you had to constantly look for food. And if you didn't find food, that was a real survival threat. Now, think about a newborn baby. It's born with all this equipment to say, I'm hungry, but I don't know how to get food. So that's a survival threat. So the first thing a baby does is cry because it feels needs, but it cannot take action to meet its needs. So for all of us, like the foundational circuit in your brain, your first experience is this sort of panicky, threatened feeling of you feel the need, 
but you can't do anything about it. And so that's sort of um, something that everyone is challenged to manage. That's part of life. And, of course, a baby, when a baby cries, its needs get met. But then eventually the baby learns, like, whoa, I need this person to come to meet my needs, but the person doesn't always come. So it's like you have limited control over the world. So you gradually build your power to meet your own needs, but the more you do that, the more you learn that your power has some limits. Um, Now, when you asked about, like, what is our power? So um, to be specific, so we're using all these circuits that we built when we were young because that's, that's when the brain builds itself. But we have this little bit of power to say, no, I'm not going to use that circuit. So it's sort of like putting on the brakes. It's like saying my electricity could flow effortlessly into that circuit because it's so big and well-developed that I just flow there without even noticing. But if I stop, I can redirect my electricity into a different neural pathway. But that's hard to do because the new neural pathway is not big. It's like choosing to take a tiny, tiny little path through the jungle rather than the paved road. But when you know that the paved road goes to a yucky place that you don't want to go to, then you invest the extra energy it takes to um, to blaze a new trail in the jungle of neurons. Okay. Okay. Wow. Jeez. That that's like heavy and like that's like a woo, like a a huge moment to to really think about. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I have another analogy that I think helps. Um, You may have heard that if you have a large ocean liner, um, when it turns, they put all of the engines to turn the ship, and you don't see any movement for 20 minutes. So you have so much momentum going in the direction you're in that when you make all this effort to turn and you don't even see a result. Like even the ship, even when they've done the right thing, you don't see it for 20 minutes. So it's the same way with your brain is that when you change and you do the right thing, it doesn't feel right at first because your old circuits are so big. So you have to keep doing the new thing for a while before your electricity flows effectively. And that's, that's the stumbling block, I think, for many people. Absolutely. And yeah, that's really like an aha moment. I love those analogies. Where do you. You, where do you think that people, uh, you know, I, I think I would assume that somewhere in people people's lives, they go from, you know, a more calm state. Obviously not everybody, but as as children, typically, you know, as you said, our, our needs are met more often. Where do people go wrong with, you know, something that they're doing or a way that they're thinking or whatever where anxiety starts to permeate? Well, quite frankly, um, I don't make a lot of this in the book, but um, many people get rewarded for anxiety. So the brain is always learning from what gets rewarded. And um, speaking as a teacher, I've even heard today that a student can go to the teacher and say, I'm having anxiety. And then the teacher says, okay, you don't have to take the test, you know, Mm. or let's say you have anxiety and your parents suddenly drop everything and relax the rules and they're suddenly nice to you. 
So that would be, you know, the brain does whatever gets rewarded. And the person isn't necessarily trying to do that, but um, that's, that's what works. Another example of how it happens is what's called mirror neurons, which are always learning from the behaviors around you when you're young. So if you are a child and you have a parent who's having anxiety, it's easy to learn that or, or peers. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really, really interesting because, you know, as you said, it, it is, it can absolutely, the learned part of it, you know, as you stated with, with our brains getting that reward, I I guess that's showing us that, oh, I can do this again and get rewarded again. I don't have to take that test now or whatever. That's very, very interesting. I've got to tell you, and I know that, that teachers do this, uh, but none of my teachers, there were so many times I had anxiety uh, regarding tests or whatever. And they're like, okay, well, you know, but when I was in school, so they've, uh, they should probably, you know, get back to that in, in, yeah. in that regard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. And, and another thing is small steps. Like if, if a student has anxiety about a test, um, uh, here's another problem. They promote students whether they've learned the material or not. Mm-hmm. So over time, it just seems like a bigger and bigger gulf. So it may hurt a person's pride, but if they go back to a lower level, then they can master it and mastery success. That's what our brain learns from. We need to experience success in order to have the expectation of success. And once you get to something where you can do it, then you enjoy dopamine. That's the I can do it feeling. So we all need to create a small context where a tiny piece of something where we can do it and build on that. Okay. And then, so looking at some of your other books, you've written Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin Levels. You've also written The Science of Positivity, Stop Negative Thought Patterns by Changing Your Brain Chemistry, and I Mammal, How to Make Peace with the Animal Urge for Social Power. In regards to the two happiness-focused uh, books, what do you think, if there is a key, what what would you say the key is to happiness? <laughs> the key to happiness. Well, um, let me talk about the big thing I haven't um, gone into yet, which is social comparison. So in the animal world, animals are very competitive. And this is not popular today. There was like a century of research on this, and now it has suddenly been swept away, and now we're being sold the idea that animals are empathetic and altruistic. But in fact, they're, they're not only competitive, but they're hierarchical. So animals are always looking for the one-up position because it gives them an advantage in food and mating opportunity, and that spreads their genes, and we are inherited from individuals who succeeded at spreading their genes. Right. That's where our brain comes from. So brains that reward you with a good feeling when you get the one-up position is so obvious to see in daily life. But the flip side of that is that when you're not in the one-up position, your brain sees it as a survival threat. And so many people with perfectly good lives are driving themselves crazy because someone else is in the one-up position. 
Mm. And how? Uh, I, I'm sorry. Sorry. And how? Oh, well, a simple example, if you think about it from like I've been on these monkey tours when I remember the first time I heard like a monkey will not get mating opportunity if it's not in the one up position. And then it's genes will be wiped out. So we could not be descended from that, you know, that we're only descended from individuals who asserted. Wow. So so do you think that happiness with humans, how can what can we learn from from monkeys and mammals in in that happiness with what they their definition of happiness is compared to what ours is, which is obviously varies by person, but generally speaking. Yeah. So when you see that you have this little advantage over the individual next to you, your brain releases serotonin. This is not the way serotonin is talked about today, but in the 70s and 80s, there were studies. And before that, like I said, there was a whole century of research on competitiveness among animals in a field called ethology, which is animal behavior. And so obviously, I'm not saying that you should go around looking for the one-up position. But what I'm saying is you are already doing that. Right. (laughs) And when you understand that you're doing that, then you liberate yourself from feeling like the world is doing it to you. Mm. And it's like nobody's doing this to you. It's like we're all mammals. We're all doing it. And the the ironic thing is when you succeed in being in the one-up position, you get this little bit of serotonin, and in a few minutes your body metabolizes it, and it's gone. And then you have to do it again. And then you start taking for granted whatever status you have and you want more, which is why the cliche about, like, why are movie stars not happy? Mm-hmm. Why are rock stars not happy? Everyone thinks, well, I'll be happy if I'm a, 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 a star in some way, but then they're not. And right. so we all, this is the treadmill feeling, which is natural because the mammal brain is always trying to spread its genes. So once you know that you are creating that, then you could say, oh, so this is what my inner mammal wants to release those chemicals, but I know that I'm really safe. It's just my natural impulse to survive. And, of course, the the complication in all this is we humans know that we're mortal, which animals don't know, and that makes it all the harder (laughs) to feel (laughs) confident and comfortable. And so I use the word legacy a lot, like people urgently want a legacy because that's the, the way that we ease our, our survival threat feelings. And in the past, most people had grandchildren and they invested their traditions into their grandchildren. And so that gave them that perception of survival. But very few people today get to invest their traditions into their grandchildren. So, so that's why people are so urgently... <clears throat> looking for other ways to stimulate that survival feeling. Okay. And uh, do you think that happiness, knowing all this, do you think that happiness could be a choice in some ways? Exactly. hundred percent. Okay. I love that. I love that so much. And then I, I meant to ask you this, uh, 
as we were talking about anxiety, but so I'll just go back for a moment. Is anxiety inherent? And what I mean is, is there, I would assume that there is not going to be one person who can go their entire life without anxiety, right? At some point. Yes, yes, exactly. It's, it's a natural response. Our brain is designed to go on expectation. So whatever happened to you before, your brain expects it to happen again. So anything bad that happened to you, your brain is looking for more of that. Okay, so so really what it's about is not eliminating anxiety from your life entirely. It's managing um, the the normal anxiety that one would get through living life. Right, exactly. And what we could say is it's trying to avoid a cortisol loop. So once once you have a negative feeling that puts a negative lens on everything, which leads you to more negative feeling and more cortisol and more negative feeling, you know, seeing more negative things. So it's how can you um, sort of isolate that and say, yes, this bad thing did happen, but I don't have to then make associations that color everything bad. Gotcha. Wow. That is super, super powerful. And I'm glad I went back to that question. So, so we got that answer. That's amazing. Well, doctor, is there is there anything else that you wanted to cover? Um, yeah, well, we talked about serotonin and dopamine. We could very quickly talk about oxytocin. So um, many people have not heard of oxytocin, and then many other people are in the oxytocin fan club because it's called the love hormone. And it, it, it's what makes mammals different from reptiles because mammals have social bonds. So oxytocin creates a feeling of social trust. And it's nice, so we seek it all the time, but we're not meant to release it all the time because if you trusted everyone, that wouldn't be safe. Mm. So we're meant to make careful decisions about how to get it. But it's complicated because when an animal is with its herd, then it has to follow the herd or else it's isolated. And when it's isolated, then it might get eaten. But we humans get annoyed. Like, who wants to follow the herd all the time? Right. But when we separate from the herd, then we feel threatened. And once again, when you understand this seesaw, this frustration of, oh, I don't want to be in the herd, but I don't want to be isolated. It's like, oh, so my inner mammal is doing this, (laughs) but I don't have to. Right. And do you think there's such a thing as oxytocin addiction? And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I've seen people who they're always in a new relationship. And once they break up with and this person is, you know, oh, this is the one for me. And then they break up and then two weeks later they're with somebody else. And oh, this is the (laughs) one for me. Is is that like an oxytocin addiction or? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I try not to use disease language like addiction. Gotcha. Um, and, um, and also we have the healthy, we have the concept of attachment, which, again, is what um, distinguishes mammals because baby reptiles don't attach to their mother. They leave the instant they're born, and if they don't leave fast enough, she eats them. Wow. <laughs> and, and mammals have an attachment period, which is, very short for most animals compared to humans. So attachment is like a normal, healthy thing, but we 
with our big cortex, we can make decisions about when we attach rather than just attaching to whoever happens to be there. Um, and so why does this person need, like, any attachment? And why do others fear all attachments? So the important thing is that all of our circuits are built from early experience. So whatever triggered my happy chemicals when I was young built a pathway for me to expect to get more in that way in the future. So one person, maybe when they were young, they got their needs met this way. Another person, when they were young, they got their needs met that way. And everyone, curiously, is sort of repeating what they did when they were young, despite the fact that, you know, a lot of us try not to. Right. (laughs) And um, one other thing about Tame Your Anxiety that I absolutely loved, and I've never seen this in a book. So in the last chapter of the book, you talk about helping others to tame anxiety. And my belief, my belief in life is that we have the power to change the world through telling our own stories. And what I mean by that is in my circle of influence and whether it's one person or 10 million people or anywhere in between by being authentic and honest and sharing my story and what I went through and how I overcame it, we can, if we all did that in our own circles of influence, we could literally change the world. And so I love that in the last chapter of Tame Your Anxiety, you talk about helping others to tame anxiety. Why was that important for you to put in? Um, Well, um, there is this um, very big cultural meme right now about helping and people do want to um, influence. So influence uh, rewards us with serotonin because it puts us in the one-up feeling, uh, in the one-up position. Mm. And also, when we have that bonded feeling, we enjoy oxytocin. So everyone wants to help, but there's a lot of enabling. There's a lot of um, help that doesn't help. There's a lot of rescuing. And so, and that doesn't really work. So I wanted to uh, really go deeper into the difference between help and rescuing. And just to be simple about that is that um, modeling positive behavior is better than, is more helpful to people than trying to rescue them. That's incredible. And I also, I got to tell you from our conversation, there were so many wow moments. The the biggest thing that I am going to do moving forward, uh, from our conversation is I, I'm going to try very hard not to use what you call diseased language. I really, really like that a lot. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. And yeah, it, it's gotten so extreme, right? Yes, it really has. And, and you know, as I was thinking about as, as we were talking and, you know, I try so hard to choose happiness and, and, uh, and I believe, you, you, you know, as I said, that, that I've, really worked hard the past couple of years to, to choose what I want in life. And I want to focus on the positive and I, I don't want to give any time to the negative and, but I'm, I'm giving time and attention to the negative if I'm still using diseased language. So yeah. I, I really, yeah. really love that. And that, so that is a, out of our conversation, that is a highlight for me out of a conversation full of highlights. 
Oh, thank you. You know, disease language also takes away our power, and it says you're not responsible for for your impulses. And I don't think it really helps a person in the long run, even though it feels great in the short run to say, oh, yeah, it's not my fault. But in the long run, then it's like you're giving up that tiny power when an ocean liner has the power to change its direction, but it's hard and you're just giving it up. Right. Right. Yeah, that that is that is incredible. Well, Dr. Loretta, thank you so much for talking with me. I love your book, Tame Your Anxiety. I'm now going to go back and get your other books. Where can we find you? InnerMammalInstitute.org. InnerMammalInstitute.org. And, of course, my books are for sale in all the usual places. Awesome. And are you on social at all? Yes. On Facebook, I have a daily update. Um, Loretta Bruning, Ph.D. And then Bruning, people can get B-R-E-U-N-I-N-G, Loretta Bruning, Ph.D. And on Twitter, I'm at, uh, at Inner Mammal, and I'm on LinkedIn. Awesome. I, we will have... And I, I have a blog on psychologytoday.com, and I have a blog on Thrive Global. Okay, that is amazing. We are going to put every one of those links in the show notes and uh, and get them out to everybody. And um, thank you so much for talking to me, Dr. Bruning. I really, really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate your fabulous questions. Thank oh, you. Thank you. And please come back for the next book. Come back on and let's talk more. Oh, I'd love to. You know, I'm my current goal is um, I want to write this for teenagers because everyone says to me, I wish I knew this when I was young. Yeah. So that's the current project. That is awesome. And I think much, much, much needed. Thank you. All right. Thank Take you, care. Dr. Bruning. You too. Isn't she incredible? Dr. Bruning is, I, I just, I love her so much. I love talking to her. She is so, she's a genius. She really is. And I love how she just breaks it down into, you know, bites that we can understand, or at least I can understand. So, you know, I, I really like her style. I like the, the science behind what she's talking about with her books. And I, again, I just loved talking to her. You can find her at InnerMammalInstitute.org, and we'll have, you know, that link and all our socials up on our show notes page, which, by the way, if you go to Kyle, the number two, the letter U.com, Kyle2U.com, you can get all of the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes, as well as supplementary information. There's links to buy her books, and I highly recommend you look into that and information on some of her videos and all kinds of, you know, resources in stuff that we talked about in this episode. So go to kyle2u.com and you can get all that great information. And please continue to support us. I love that you guys are so amazing and so active. I'm at KMac Music on Twitter and Instagram, at RealKyleMcMahon on Facebook. And you can Find the show, Kyle to You, on Twitter and Facebook as well. And that's obviously Kyle, the number two, the letter U. 
I love you guys. I can't wait to get your feedback on today's episode. I'm sure it'll make for some awesome conversations. See you next week. Once you-